All right, church, go ahead and open your Bibles now to Philippians. Thank you, Brian. We are going to finish out chapter one today, and the next week we're going to be ready to move into chapter two. And hey, I think I probably say this a lot, but this is just a great part of the text. I'm telling you, the next few weeks, I mean, I think today's text is wonderful. Then it gets into the part of the book that I just think marks this uh, letter in a unique way, the humility of Jesus Christ and this this uh, Philippians creed that we've been reciting every week. We're about to get into that part of the next couple of weeks to actually teach through that. I cannot wait. So we have a lot of great things coming up here in store for us. Uh, let me say this. If you're just catching up with the series, maybe you're new to fellowship this week or in the last couple of weeks, here's what we know. Paul is in prison. He's likely in Rome. He's writing a letter to this church that had just given him this gift. And that was the way that you were provided for back then if you were in prison. It was, you know, the government wouldn't provide for you. You were dependent on, on the care and love of people who knew you and would care for you and provide for your needs. And in this case, it was this church. And so Paul writes them a letter of gratitude, and this is the letter that we hold in our hands today, and it would have been carried by a member of their church who visited Paul named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus almost lost his life in the course of this journey, but God preserved his life to deliver this letter back to the Philippians and preserve it even for us this morning. And so what we know about this church is it has a close uh, it's, it's close to Paul's heart and just the, the affinity and affection he has for this church pours out through his words. In last week's passage, Paul levels with them and, and he's not afraid to say, I might die. If you were here last week, you heard Lloyd's message and it was a fantastic message and it gets into the heart of this issue where Paul's saying, hey, look, I don't know which way this is gonna go. I might die, I might live. And then verse 21, chapter 121 is one of the highlights of the, the, the book. For me, Paul writes, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it's gain because he gets to go be with Christ physically in person for eternity. But there's also a benefit for him living, but it's less about Paul, it's more about the people Paul is serving. So Lloyd's challenge last week was to find someone to live for their joy and progress in the gospel. The application last week was pray that the Holy Spirit would bring one person to your mind that this week you could live for their joy and progress in the gospel. And that's the example of Paul. And by the way, it's not too late to do that, I would encourage us all to be thinking that way. So we move on to today's text, and I'm just gonna read the first two verses of it, but we are gonna be finishing through the end of the chapter. But let me start with verses 27 and 28, Philippians chapter one. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, that's his reference to whether I live or whether I die, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Once again, we see Paul's tremendous emphasis on the gospel of Jesus Christ. He keeps bringing it up. It's in every text we study. And so I'm going to mark that again. You're welcome to follow along with me if you're doing that. Gospel shows up in verse 27. Christ shows up verse 27. And then the gospel again at the end of the verse. 
This is how I've been marking this up as we go along. I think I mentioned every two and a half verses in this letter, Paul mentions Jesus, not just in, in reference, in an indirect reference, but direct reference, naming him every two and a half verses. The big idea of our text this morning is right here in the first phrase. I'll put a box around it so it'll really stand out. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This word only indicates if there's just one thing you do. So Paul has just told him, he said, listen, I don't know if I'm gonna live. I don't know if I'm gonna die. I'm gonna be okay either way. But as for you, only this one thing, I just kind of picture Paul in this, in this house arrest prison environment. He would have been chained 24-7 to a, a member of the Roman guard, and he's dictating this letter likely maybe to Timothy, probably. And, and I just see him at this point saying, only this one thing. He kind of puts his fingers on, just this one thing. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I'll be honest, I had a hard time with that phrase in my study because I thought, how could my life be worthy of the gospel of Christ? How could anyone's worth life be worthy, in a sense, of the gospel of Christ? Think about that for a minute, guys. The gospel is the, the, the greatest event. You know, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection for us. It's the greatest event in the history of the world. It's the news of the greatest event in the history of the world that centers on the greatest person in the history of the world, the history of the universe, God himself in flesh. How could the manner of my life be worthy of the gospel? Well, let's dig into that. We're gonna spend about half of the message this morning on one Greek word. And the reason we're gonna spend so much time is there's one Greek word that translates a whole phrase in the English. Let your manner of life be. That. That is one verb in the Greek language, six words in the English translation. And when I dug into the Greek word, I thought, oh, there is something our English translation is missing. I don't say that out of arrogance. I, these guys are much better Greek scholars than I will ever be, trust me. And, and when they translate these texts, they're translating in teams and there's a whole process and our English translations are fantastic. But, but there is something of this word that I wanna draw out this morning that, that at least in this particular English translation is, is not there. There is one Greek word that I want you to know and you don't have to necessarily remember this, but, but for the nerds in the room, I'm gonna write it on the screen so that you can kind of know what it is. You might, you might kind of, Write it in English this way, poly to oh my. That's our transliteration. I, I put the, the T-U in capitalized, capitalized letters because that would be the accent. Poly to am I. Now, I really want to focus on the prefix of this word, P-O-L-I. Uh, we get our English words politics, metropolis, metropolitan, even police. What do all those words have in common? Well, it's something about the city, something about the government. And in fact, the literal translation of this word would be to be a citizen of. Polytuomai in Greek means to be a citizen of. And so I'm going to retranslate this verse in a way that I think will bring out what I think Paul intended with this context. And, and it, would, it would be this, only live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Maybe 
an easier way to say that, and I might've written it this way, live as worthy citizens. So live as citizens who are worthy of the gospel. Now, this is where this passage came alive for me because what I realized is Paul is actually not calling them to live up to, to some great external standard. He's actually calling them to live out of what has already been placed in them. You see, they are, through faith in Jesus, citizens of the gospel of Christ. They are citizens of heaven. They are citizens of the kingdom. That is their identity. And so what Paul is saying here is he's not saying, oh, you've, you've got to really like externally work hard to earn some badge of merit. He's saying, you are citizens of the gospel. Live that way. Live as the worthy citizens that you are already called to be. This changed everything for me as I studied it. According to the Greek philosophers of Paul's day, you became virtuous by doing virtuous things. You know, that, that was the philosophy. That's Aristotle, that's others. That, that's, in fact, that's the philosophy of our day. I mean, really, essentially, any religion outside of Christianity is, you know, you need to do righteous things in order to earn some level of righteousness and acceptance with God. Christianity is the opposite of that. Christianity is you are declared righteous. The righteousness of Jesus is imputed on you. You do not earn it. You could not disearn it, for lack of a better way of saying it. There's nothing you can do to lose it because there's nothing that you could do to earn it. The righteousness of Jesus was placed on you. And so what you are called now to do is live out what has been placed in. Your citizenship has been fundamentally altered. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you became a citizen of Jesus Christ's kingdom. You became a citizen of the kingdom of God. You became a citizen of this good news. You became a citizen of the gospel. And now Paul is calling us to inside out living. And this is what I'd say about this. True Christian growth is always inside out, not outside in. In other words, your being precedes your doing. In fact, you might consider the whole Christian life is a long practice in your doing, catching up to your being. And if you really think about that, that is so freeing because there's nothing for you to earn. There's only something for you to live out. Jody and I are, are not expert parents and we would never claim to be. Uh, we are now in the teenage years. So we've learned what it's like to parent young you know, toddlers and now middle school and high school. And you have to change your parenting approach depending on the age of your children as you all know this. And one thing I've been reflecting on recently is I think there may be a way to parent outside in and parent inside out. And for me, this is what that means. Most of my parenting is outside in. It's it's, all right, girls, here, here's what we expect of you. Here's the standard. Now, you need to obey the standard. Don't do these things, do these things. Don't do these things, do these things. And then when they mess up, it's, why did you do these things? Like, these are on the list of things that you shouldn't do. Every now and then, 
in a conversation with one of my daughters, you know, after they've done something they weren't supposed to do, I have flipped the script, okay? This is not often, all right? I'm not claiming to be super parent by any means, but every now and then, I've been able to look them in the eye, and instead of saying, like, why did you do this thing you weren't supposed to do? I've said this, that is not who you are. I know who you are. I see beauty in you. I see glory in you through your faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm inviting you to live out what Jesus has put in. And I, 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 don't, I don't know what kind of effect that has on them, but I will tell you when I've done that, they look at me differently. It occurred to me, all of our daughters are believers. At some point in life, in the best way that they were able to, they articulated faith in Jesus Christ. You know what that means? They have the spirit in them just as I have the spirit in me. And I see them struggling and I see them growing. Just I see myself struggling and I see myself growing. And I think what, what this is about of them growing up is it's about them learning to live out what Jesus put inside of them. And I think that's me too. Now, the rest of this passage answers the question, what does it look like for us to live out the citizenship that is ours in Christ Jesus? What does it look like for us to live as citizens worthy of the gospel? And so if that describes your heart this morning, if you know I'm a citizen of the gospel, but, but I'm struggling to live it out, or I wanna live it out, or I wanna grow in the way that I'm living it out, this is for you this morning. There are four things that Paul is gonna talk about straight from our text. And I wanna invite you to illustrate it with me just to make it more memorable. So I'm gonna go to a blank slide. I'm gonna draw a little bit. You, you can follow along on the right side if you want to, if you've got space to do it, or even if it's in just your Bible, you can draw on the margins. I love encouraging people to mark up their Bibles. It becomes more valuable to you in doing that. So if you're able to follow along, I'd encourage you to. I'm going to draw a little illustration that's going to, going to describe the four marks of a citizen of the gospel. And I'm going to label it here at the top as citizens of the gospel. And then right underneath that, we're going to put our scripture passage so we can remember where this is coming from. It's coming straight from chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And then under that, I want you to draw kind of like a crest or a shield, you know? And, and, and here, here's the image I have in my mind is, is sort of like if there, if there was going to be a badge of citizenship for citizens of the gospel, what words might be on that badge? Maybe some of you grew up as Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts and, you know, you earn your badge, you know, you earn your citizenship badge and they, or you earn other badges. They're gonna have words on them like, you know, courageous and they have loyal and, you know, inventive or, you know, whatever the words that you're working on. And, and, and so what would be the words that might show up on the citizens of the gospel, a badge of citizenship? Well, the first word, and I'll show you where this comes from the text in a moment, but just go ahead and write the word faithful. Faithful, that's the first word that marks you. If you are a citizen of the gospel, it marks you. What does faithful mean? It means full of faith, literally. Citizens of the gospel are faithful. And of course, it's a faithfulness that's not your own. It's the faithfulness of Jesus you are living out. But, but let me show you specifically where this comes from in this text. Okay, 
Live as citizens worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm. That is a faithful posture in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There are our faithfulness phrases, standing firm, striving. But what are we standing firm and striving for? The faith of the gospel. I don't want you to miss we are called to strong things. Standing firm, striving. Paul is choosing powerful, strong, like go to war kind of words. But notice we're not standing firm and striving for our opinions, our desires, our preferred way of life. We are standing firm and we are striving for the faith of the gospel. You see, it makes all the sense in the world for citizens of the gospel to strive for the gospel. The context Paul was writing this in, in Philippi was a very patriotic community. You, you had these military leaders who had retired in Philippi. All the, the, the inhabitants of Philippi, they were, they were citizens. It was, it was actually kind of rare that a city would have the status that Philippi had. It was, it was one of the most important cities in that area from a Roman perspective. And so you had all these Roman citizens. They're proud of their citizenship. I think that's why Paul is, is ta- using this particular Greek word, live as a citizen of, but notice he's saying it's not a citizen of Rome. You're not to stand firm and strive for the pride of your Roman citizenship. You are to stand firm and strive for the faith of the gospel of which you are a citizen of. You see what Paul's doing here? Now, in our world, there's a lot of taking sides right now and standing firm and striving people striving for ideas, people striving for worldviews, people striving for perspectives, people striving, all kinds of things going on. As citizens of the gospel, we're called to stand firm and we're called to strive for the faith of the gospel, for the message of good news. So think about it this way. In a world that is drawing battle lines over all kinds of things and opinions, we proclaim a person and a message. It's not an opinion. It's an event that happened that brings good news to the earth, joy to the world. Sometimes in the debates on social media and around the water cooler, it's hard to keep the main thing the main thing. But we must. I don't go on social media a lot, but the last time I I did this week... I was just, honestly, I was discouraged because what I saw was a lot of striving and standing firm on things and Jesus wasn't even mentioned. You know, and, and these were fellow believers that I saw with, with such passion and energy. And, and, and I'm not saying don't engage those things. Part of being a good citizen also of our nation is it can be healthy and good to engage some of those conversations. But do we prioritize our citizenship in the kingdom of God and the message of the gospel. Here's what I would say application-wise. As we engage our world and our culture, and we must, 
If we don't do anything else, let us speak of Jesus. Let us speak of Jesus. Let, let him be on our lips. Paul's example, every two and a half verses, he's bringing us back to Jesus. He's bringing us back to the gospel. Let Jesus be the center of the way you process all that's around you that's making you afraid or that's, that's engaging you or is lighting you up or is, is, is creating some passion in you. Follow that passion to the degree that Jesus is the center of it. To the degree that he's not, ask yourself, am I keeping the main thing the main thing? This is the challenge for us in our day. We are citizens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us be faithful in that. The second characteristic of citizens of the gospel, united, right? Go ahead and write that right here, big and bold on the bottom. This is a theme in Philippians. It's why it's come up in my messages and Lloyd's messages. It's all over this book. Uh, let me show you where it's coming up very clearly in our text that I may hear of you. You are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, side by side. See the unity Paul is calling for, and he's been so consistent in calling them to agree, calling them to unity, calling them to be one. If you have a pen or a pencil, I would encourage you to write a capital S over that lowercase s because I think it's clear from the context and the best study that I've done of this text, Paul has the Holy Spirit in mind. He has the unity of the Spirit. And listen, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are united into a family with all other believers in Jesus Christ. People that disagree with you on certain issues, people that live in other continents and other countries and see the world a little bit differently than you do, you are united with them. And that unity far transcends even the blood of your own family. I know that's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but that's what the New Testament consistently teaches. And so we are to stand firm in one capital S Holy Spirit sense. And with one mind, was Paul saying we have to agree on every little thing? I don't think so. But he is saying we need to agree and prioritize the most important things, which from Paul's perspective, the most important thing would be, take a guess, what do you think? Yeah, yes. He keeps coming back to it over and over. It's gotta be the gospel. It's gotta be the message of Jesus Christ. So let's have one mind about the gospel. Let's stand firm in one spirit. And then we're gonna do this striving, not alone, not as lone, lone ranger Christians. Side by side, we're gonna strive. That phrase, likely a reference to the way that the Roman uh, army would fight. They had these particular formations. You know, some of you know a lot more about this than I do if you're you know, a history guy, but, but, but there was never an army like the Roman army. I mean, it was just unbelievable force and they learned to fight together. You know, they would make these formations where they were just impenetrable because they'd, the, the soldiers would be on the inside and their shields were all on the other side and they would just like slice through the enemy. And this is a, a, a metaphor that would have worked for this audience. And so Paul is saying, you're to strive like that. You are to be in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side. How will we live that out here at Fellowship? One of our core values is better together. And I wanna tell you guys, you know, that, that's a, you start hearing that phrase other places in our culture these days, but here's, here's what we mean by it. 
we believe in team and we believe in community here at Fellowship. And we live out team in all kinds of ways. The elder team, rather than just having one leader, the, the multiple teachers that you all experience week in, week out. We have different worship leaders. We have teams of staff members. And then I wanna invite you all onto the field we want to encourage and invite you. It's not about like you guys attending some church that the staff puts on. This is about us united in one spirit, in one mind, getting on the field together, striving side by side, jump in, serve. But don't just think about the ministries of fellowship. You guys have opportunities where you live, work, and play, and people that know Christ, that you can encourage people that don't know Christ, that you can share your faith with. That's all part of what we're being called to here. Let us Strive together, side by side, for the faith of the gospel. There's a third word. I'm going to go back to our, our little uh, shield here and write the word courageous in the upper right-hand corner. So we are as citizens of the gospel. We're called to be faithful, united, courageous. Let's go back to our verses Verse 28, not frightened in anything. Interesting that Paul talks about opponents, you know, um, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Who were the opponents? Well, remember the context was a very patriotic, loyal to Caesar community. And here you had this little group of Christians whose mantra was, Jesus is Lord. That'd get you thrown in prison. Because in, in that political context, there's only one Lord, and it was not Jesus, it was Caesar. And so the pressure of that community to be patriotic, loyal citizens of Rome, their identity was built on that. Now you have Christians that are saying, well, yeah, we, we're still Roman citizens, but we have a higher Lord. Paul's saying, be courageous because there are many opponents who will oppose that truth. And that's what they were experiencing. Uh, by the way, I think we often get our opponents confused. I was driving up from Atlanta. Uh, we were down there um, shopping for a car a few weeks ago for, for our, our family with a new driver in the house. And we were driving on I-75 up toward Chattanooga and I saw a billboard that said every knee will bow and tongue confess Jesus as Lord. Underneath it said, even the Democrats. And I, I, I wasn't amused, if I'm honest. And it's not because I, I was necessarily taking a different political stance. It's because I thought, I wonder if the, the person that put that billboard up and paid for that billboard, if they're aware that, that we do have an opponent and it's not the Democrats. Amen. And I could say the same thing about the other side of the aisle. We, we do have an opponent, it's not the Republicans. Um, the, the opponent that we have is a spiritual opponent who desires in a very real and tangible way to derail and distract from the message of the gospel. A clear opponent who has his sights dead set on anything other than the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Even good things, go fight for these things and, and that's great, go do it. Just don't talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, Satan would say. Do you, you, see, you see this? Guys, let us not forget we have an opponent 
Let us remember who our opponent is. Now, I think it's interesting here, Paul says, it's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, that from God. Well, what is a clear sign? The courage that when they're not frightened, it's a sign to their opponents of their destruction, but your salvation. And at first, that sounds just like, kind of like, nanny, nanny, boo, boo, we're gonna win, you're not gonna win. That's not the spirit that Paul wrote that in. This is not about rubbing it in their faces. This is about witnessing. It's about witnessing. Great courage in the face of persecution is a sign of supreme confidence. For the Christian, the confidence is always in what? The gospel, in the message of salvation, in Jesus. Why does the gospel give us such confidence? Because it assures our future. So when Christians throughout the last 2,000 years have been persecuted and, and they have in the face of persecution or even martyrdom had great courage, guess what? The gospel has flourished. Some of the most effective witnesses of Jesus have been Christian martyrs. It was the early Christian theologian Tertullian who wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We don't like that, but that is actually the way that God designed it to be. And I I'm not going morbid here. What I'm saying is our whole faith was founded by martyrdom, in martyrdom, and the resurrection that follows. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, take up your cross. And that didn't mean you put the little silver thing around your neck. It meant prepare to die. The context that Paul is writing this letter, it was likely, not maybe, it was likely that many men and women in this congregation were going to be killed for their faith. And so Paul is saying, just don't be frightened by that. You have nothing to be afraid of. Satan himself cannot harm you. Not in any way that matters. May kill the body. But guess what that means for you? And when you start to, to have that kind of courage because of the gospel, you're undefeatable. Like, do you get that? It's just, it's this, and Paul had he'd gotten to this level where Paul was just like, look, Remember what Lloyd said last week? When to live as Paul lived, you have to think about death the way Paul, whatever, whatever. Lloyd said it better. But you know what I'm talking about. You gotta think about death the way Paul thought about death to live the way Paul lived. There you go. I've got one more that I wanna tease out here before I wrap up. Christians are not only called to be faithful, courageous, and united, but watch this one more. It comes from our last two verses. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now here I still have. Citizens of the gospel are called to be faithful, united, courageous, sufferers. Maybe not the word you were expecting Maybe not the word you desire. But as I've studied this text, I think it's the word that deserves to be in the center. Why is it this way? Would you believe Paul is saying it's a gift of grace? 
look at the text again. It has been granted to you. That, that in, in the Greek, that's the same word for gift or grace. It's just Greek, the same word, gift and grace is the same word. It has been graced to you. It has been gifted to you. You should not only believe, we accept that as a gift of grace, but you should also suffer. Suffering for Christ's sake is a gift of grace. Eugene Peterson, who paraphrased the, the text in, in the message, he wrote it this way, there's far more to this life than trusting in Christ. There's also suffering for him. And the suffering is as much a gift as the trusting. How could that be? Suffering for the sake of Jesus is perhaps the most profound and tangible way to follow him. Suffering is the characteristic or the mark of citizens of the gospel that no one wants to choose. But Paul is saying it is the path of joy because it is the path of Jesus. Why did God design it this way? I don't know, but it's clear to me that he did. It's clear to me that, that the Father, Son, and the Spirit in eternity past said the way salvation is going to work is through the body of Christ laying down its life for the sake of the world. And now, as the body of Christ, it is our turn to lay down our lives for the sake of the world citizens of the gospel are sufferers and we are joyful sufferers and we are hopeful sufferers. And, and, and we're not just saying like, oh, let me go like find pain and find suffering. That was never the way of Jesus. But if you have eyes to see, suffering is all around us. If you have eyes to see, suffering is in us. And we are called to walk in it with Jesus and for his sake. Jesus, it turns out, is the chief citizen. Jesus is our leader in suffering. Jesus, it turns out, is the faithful one, the courageous one, the one whose life and death earned us unity by the Spirit. And so what we're called to do in this text is to live out what Jesus has put in, to live out our citizenship as we follow Jesus in a world like ours. And now I want to encourage you to reflect on some application of this this week as we talk about our invitation to joy Choose a specific way this week you can live out your identity as a citizen of the gospel. And, and, and there are our words. And so what I'm inviting you to do is, is which one right now even, which one would the Holy Spirit just highlight for, for you? Is there something that you're being called to be faithful in for the sake of Jesus, to have some courage in right now? 
for the sake of Jesus? Is there some unity you need to seek with a brother or sister in Christ? There's something between you, and for the sake of Jesus, you'll seek that unity this week. Or for many of us, it could be looking at our suffering a new way and, and, and walking into it with a sense of joy because we know that Jesus is with us as our true sufferer. Let's take a moment to reflect on this. And as you're doing so, I wanna invite you to take out the elements of the Lord's Supper. And if you did not get one as you came in, don't, don't be shy, just get up right now and, and go through those doors and you can grab one. This table is for all followers of Jesus Christ. If you can be a part of our church or not part of our church, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation, if you are trusting him for life, if you understand the gospel message is Jesus died for you, he paid the penalty for your sins and you put your trust in that good news. This table is for you this morning and we wanna invite you to it to join with us. And if you are with us this morning at the table, I wanna encourage you to take out this little wafer, this little piece of bread and just hold it in your hand. Let's not eat it just yet. I wanna invite you to reflect on it for just a moment. You know, I'm holding it in my hand right here and I can hardly even feel it. It's just almost a nothing it's so light. It, it's, it, I'm, I'm hungry right now, and this is not going to satisfy my hunger. It, it's, it's, all, it's so insubstantial. It's almost weightless. And yet, it points me to the most important thing. When I eat this with mindfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it fills me in a way food never could. What you're invited to this morning, I, I don't know what kind of week you've lived. You might have struggled in a deep way. You might have been sinning all throughout the week. You might have sinned last night, sinned this morning, and you might have even had anger in your heart as I've been teaching God's word this morning. And yet, Jesus broke his body for you. The gift of the gospel is for you this morning, wherever you are, that you would receive this gift of grace. The broken body of Jesus Christ is yours. Through faith, let us eat and rejoice. I had a seminary professor once say to us, we were talking about communion and man, what a, what a rich history and the body of Christ the Lord's table has. This particular seminary professor, I'll never forget this. He said, you know, every time I partake of the elements, it's a reminder to myself and a statement back to God, I'm still in. And I think he meant that two ways. On, on the one hand, he, he was just reminded, no matter what I've done, no matter where my life is at this moment, I cannot get out because I am in not in my own merit. I also thought it was a recommitment on his part to say, I, I'm still in. I struggle with doubts. I struggle with lots of things. But Jesus, I'm still in. So you hold in your hands this morning this symbol, this little taste of the bitter sweetness of the juice and let it remind us here, partakers this morning, we are still in. Let's drink Our Father, we love you. 
thank you for giving us Jesus. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. May we be worthy citizens of it. In the name of Christ.